Let's open our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and tonight we'll consider verses 20 through 24. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. While you're turning there, let me remind you that, that the book of Ephesians is, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is divided up pretty nicely into two parts. The first three chapters were heavy, heavy with regard to theology. The second two, three chapters, rather, are heavy with regard to the application of that theology. We, we could also put it this way. In the first three chapters, Paul has outlined in a great way what God has done for us and all the many, many blessings that he's accomplished on our behalf. And then the second half, in chapters 4 through 6, we could put it this way, that because of everything he's done for us, we have a responsibility to function in love. Now, the application section of this letter is divided up uh, into five major sections. First, we, we've already completed this portion where Paul speaks of a call to unity. Based upon what has been done for us, we have the responsibility as, as individuals and then corporately to function in unity. The second thing he tells us is that we should walk in holiness. That happens to be the section that we're in right now. That's chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Later on, he'll speak about walking in love, walking in light, and then walking uh, in wisdom. When we were together last time, and I know this has been three weeks or so for those of you that are here. If you're listening to the tape, it's just been one tape to the next. But you'll recall in verses 17 through 19, Paul outlines how a believer should not walk when it comes to holiness. And then in verses 20 through 32, the passage that we'll begin studying tonight, Paul explains in a positive way how we should walk when it comes to a holy walk. Now, if we summarize the last lesson that we had, and I know uh, some of you can't remember what you had for breakfast this morning, so it's going to be difficult. I don't, want, I don't want to embarrass you or me, either one, by asking you if you remember what we studied three weeks ago. But basically, the idea was that futile thinking leads to futile activity. We should not walk in futility of mind. But how should we live? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked because Paul's got some really nice suggestions or commands, if you will, about how that should be. So the positive, how we should look at this, a walk in holiness from the positive standpoint begins in verse 20. And these verses read like this. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him, and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness, holiness, and of the truth. These are extremely powerful words because they begin the section where Paul actually tells us from a positive standpoint what the Christian life should look like. You see, the Christian life is not just avoidance of sin. The Christian life is also a pursuit of God. Now, some people call it the pursuit of holiness. A.W. Tozer liked to use that particular phrase. But tonight I'm just going to call it a pursuit of God. It's one thing to avoid doing the wrong thing. It's something else to pursue doing the right thing. And so that's what Paul's done here. He's told us first negatively what we ought not to do. And I love the way Paul does this. He doesn't just stop there. The Christian way of life is not just don't do this, don't do that. Don't touch, don't taste, don't smell. 
That's not the Christian way of life. It may, that may be a part of it. And we don't want to go so far and say there are no negative commands. Of course there are. But it's more, there's more to it than just that. In these verses, Paul appeals back to the previous instruction that the Ephesian believers had received about Christ. In verse 20, but you did not learn Christ or the Messiah. You did not learn Christ in this way. You see, in the previous few verses, verses 17 through 19, he's talking about how the Gentiles behaved. And that's a, that is a synonym for their former manner of life. Now, the Gentiles were kind of famous in the ancient world for not necessarily behaving in an extremely moral way. But there's more to it than just that. Paul is saying that the Christian way of life is, from a negative standpoint, not doing what they did. And it's not surprising that they did what they did because their thinking was stinking. And to quote uh, Zig Ziglar, I always loved Zig. Uh, uh, he has some really interesting phrases, and he talked about stinking thinking. Well, the Gentiles had stinking thinking, and they had they were, their thoughts were futile, so their actions were futile. Now, listen, what else would you expect? If our, if our thoughts are continually on on things that are unholy, then what will we expect our behavior to be? If, our, if the only thing that goes into our soul is what the secular community feeds us on a regular basis, then what do we expect? If that's all our children are listening to with regard to music, and I won't pick out a particular type, but you know what I mean. If all they listen to is a particular genre or type of music, what can you expect? I knew some young people at one point in their life, all they were listening to was real harsh, you know, beat this person up, steal from this person, I hate my father kind of music. Well, as they went through, as they went through that stage, they became kind of angry themselves. And then later on, they started listening to country western music, wearing boots and then drinking beer. I don't know what all, what all they did. But it's interesting how much these things influence us. If that's what we're pouring into our soul, it should be no surprise that activities which are unholy will come out of us. It's very, very important what we put into our soul. We're the guardian of what gets in there. Now, sometimes we can't help things. I remember when I was in seminary, there was a fellow in my small group. We had a small group accountability session that we went to once a week. And, and the fellow had said that he had to, to drive around completely a different freeway in Dallas because there was a particular billboard that was up on that freeway that got him out of fellowship every time he saw it. It happened to be for a gentleman's club, which is anything but a gentleman's club, but I think you know what I mean. And it had a rather risque picture on there. And, and so he said, I'm going to have to, instead of going down, was it 635, he had to go down uh, North Central Expressway. And I said, why don't you just not look at the picture, you know, with, and save yourself that 20 minutes with an extra drive. But he was being careful because he knew, I guess he couldn't drive by that without looking at the picture. He didn't want to put that in because the whole garbage in, garbage out thing. That's really kind of the gist of what the, the, the Christian way of life is not supposed to be. But we've got to be very, very careful with what we put into our soul on a regular basis. Now, you know what? I'm not against the Internet. Some, people, some Christians are you know, totally against the Internet because there's a lot of bad things on it. But you know what? There's a lot of good things on there, too. I'm not against television. And there's a lot of bad things on television. But if you look hard enough, there's a lot of good things on television, too. I'm not against movies. There are a lot of bad movies out there, but there's some good. There's some good and entertaining and noble movies as well. I'm not against music. There's some bad music, but there's also some really good music. You see, it's not the genre that's the problem. It's not the vehicle that's the problem. It's what that vehicle is transmitting that could be the problem. 
So we need to be very, very careful what goes into our souls because it influences us a whole lot more than what we think. You know, there's a, there is a place where the scriptures say evil companions corrupt good morals, or at least I paraphrase by saying that. Well, that could, the same could be said by things that go in our soul that ought not to be there. So we need to be careful with regard to futile thinking because futile thinking leads to futile activity. And then verse 20, though, Paul has a contrast. But you didn't learn Christ this way. You see, all that stuff that the Gentiles were doing, that's not you. You didn't learn Christ that way. So he's appealing back here to previous instruction that these Gentile, that these Ephesian believers, rather, excuse me, these Ephesian believers, these Ephesian Christians, had been previously instructed. Now, the instruction was twofold. First, the instruction was in the gospel. And then the instruction was in, we'll call it tonight, the apostolic tradition, which later became the Word of God in terms of the New Testament. But they had already been instructed. Previously, they knew better. In other words, when Paul was with them, he put, he put the positive things from the Word of God into their soul. Now, I'm not talking about you know, um, a Christian way of life being strictly just a, a positive self-talk and positive thing. I'm not talking about that. When I say positive, I'm talking about the truth of the Word of God, the pure milk of the Word of God coming into our souls. It's so important. No matter what our age, no matter how long we've been a believer in the Lord Jesus, it is so important that we flood our soul every single day with the Word of God. Now, I know that's hard sometimes. And I, and I had a relative one time that said, that told me she doesn't study the Word of God anymore. She already knows it. Well, that's... I would have questioned whether she actually knew it or not. But, but even if you did, if you did know the Word of God, you would know that you never get enough of it. Toward the end of Paul's life, he sends for the parchments. You know, hey, I, I, I want, I've got some more reading I want to do. I've got some more studying I want to do. I suspect that on the days that led up to Paul's ex execution, he was studying the Word of God. I hope that I'm able to do that too. So we need to be careful what goes into our soul. And they had had previously the right things go into their soul. So he says, all this impurity and greed and all these things that are coming out of you because you have futile thinking, that's not the right way to do it. There's a better way to do it. And you have already learned it. In verse 21, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. The phrase, if indeed, don't let that fool you. It's not quite as, it's not there to introduce as much doubt as it might seem on the surface. With regard to the spiritual status of these Ephesian readers, Paul is writing to believers. Okay? There is, there is, there is no epistle in the New Testament that's written to unbelievers. In fact, really, there's only one book in the Bible that has as its expressed purpose in the text the evangelization, the evangelization of the unbeliever. Most everything else is written to believers. Now, that doesn't mean there's not gospel information in there. We've already had it back in chapter 2. Extremely important gospel information. But no, the, Paul's audience is composed of believers, just like you and just like me. In fact, the, the, the Ephesian church may not even be any bigger than the people in this room right here. I don't know. But, but I'm sure it, it certainly wasn't a mega church according to today's standards. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him. So the if indeed of verse 21 does not introduce doubt as to the spiritual status of the Ephesian readers so much as it might sound. But it's really closer to a statement of confidence. Hence, a few of your Bibles might translate it since. Since you have heard him. Or maybe perhaps assuming that you have heard or been taught in him. But it implies a confident assumption. So don't be, don't be fooled by the if indeed, maybe these are believers, maybe these are not believers. 
These are believers that Paul is speaking to. If indeed, or perhaps since, you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. So you've got the information. Paul would could say it another way. Listen, I, I've been there before. I have taught you. Other people have come and they've taught you. You know what the right thing to do is. I would dare say, everybody listening to my voice right now knows enough of the Word of God to know what the right thing to do would be. All, all of us know the, the first part of that content, the gospel message. All of us know that. If you're listening to this tape and, you, and you've never heard that, I do want you to know that God loves you. His son died for you, as Paul said, in order to receive this salvation, we need to believe in the Lord Jesus. But I think most everybody is, is well aware of that. And we're also well aware, now that we're several months into our Ephesian study, we're, we're also aware of some of the things that Ephesians has taught us about the great blessings that God has given us. So we have poured these things into our souls, and I certainly hope that you're studying the Word of God outside of this particular class as well, or Sunday night class or Sunday morning class, I'm hoping that you're spending time fellowshipping in God's Word every single day that He gives you bread. If you're going to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or one, one out of the three, I hope you also will feast upon the Word of God on a daily basis. It is critical to your existence as a Christian. If you want to walk in holiness, you have to flood your soul. We must flood our soul with the Word of God no matter how long we've been in the Word. You've been in, some of you have been in the Word, I know, in this room, 50 years. That's a long time to be in the Word. Maybe some even more than that. But that doesn't mean you've come to the end of the road. If you've come to the end of the road, you'll know it. Because you'll probably be face-to-face -face with the Lord. That's when you can move on to something different. You'll have a, you'll have a personal Bible class. You won't, have to, you won't have to put up with one of his under-shepherds anymore. So until that day comes, though, as long as God gives you bread. As long as he gives me bread, we, we need to be in the Word. And to the degree that that bothers you, or to the degree that you think, oh, no, I, I, I already know that, all jokes aside, I already know that, I've already been through that part, or I've, you know, I've, I've studied Ephesians before, or I, I've read Genesis, to the degree that that, that irks you, that maybe the, you've read Genesis 22, but we're going to study it on Sunday, then there's something wrong with your spiritual life. And, and I say that in love. Because every time we read the Word of God, we should read it afresh. One of my greatest experiences in my seminary days was taking a course called The Life of Christ with, with uh, J. Dwight Pentecost. It's, um, it's one of those classic courses at Dallas Seminary. I don't know if Dr. P still teaches that course or not. Is he retired from that? But, but I, I remember when I had him, it was his 45th year to teach that course. And it was kind of funny how it would work out. His Bible would be open like this. You see how my Bible's open right now? And he'd be preaching from Matthew or Mark. <laughs> and he'd be reading vast amounts of Scripture. And I'm thinking, there's no way he is in Matthew. He's doing all that from memory. He's not even looking at his Bible. And he's quoting long, long passages. And I try to get up there real quickly, but he closed his Bible real fast. I think. <laughs> well, one day somebody distracted him from this way, and I got up there, and he was in Joshua. He wasn't in Matthew, but he just had all that in his head. And he, and he taught the course with such passion. And you could tell this was a man, this is a man, who truly loves the Lord Jesus. It's not just an academic exercise for him. And by the way, pretty much everybody I had in my academic uh, seminary education was that way. It's one of the things that makes... 
my alma mater is such a special place. But, but he's, the, he's the epitome of that. But I'll never forget when he, when he closed his Bible for the last time in that particular class, he looked at us with a, that, that very sincere look that, that, um, that few, few people really have. And, and he, he's a slight man in terms of his height, and he, he kind of leaned over his um, podium, and he said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is the 45th year that I have taught this class, 45 years in here. And then he said one of the most touching things I've ever heard a professor say. And he said, I have to tell you, every time I teach this course, I come away with a new, renewed appreciation for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I love him more every time I teach about him. And that's what we ought to get as well. Yeah, we may have been through certain portions of the Word of God many, many times. But let us never allow them to become stale. Because if, if it's not the Word that's becoming stale, the Word of God's alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. It's a critic of thoughts and the intents of the heart, you see. So, it, so we need to make sure that we're putting things in us. So when Paul says, you didn't learn Christ in this way, if indeed you've heard him, well, yes, we have, and have been taught in him, well, yes, we have. Perhaps that's a reference to the gospel and then the apostolic teaching that followed it. Just as truth is in Jesus, the truth referred to in this final phrase, in verse 21, includes both the truth of the gospel and the truth of the apostolic tradition. And you know what I mean by apostolic tradition. We're not talking about tradition in the sense of the Roman Catholic Church. We're talking about the tradition of the apostles, those who had taught the Ephesian believers uh, much of what they taught later on would be put down in writing and become part of the New Testament. Now, there's one thing that bef before we go to the next verse uh, that I need to, to at least ex expose you to, and that is that, that there's an, an intricate grammatical structure that takes place over these next few verses that um, because of that, uh, here Paul uses infinitives, uh, a series of three infinitives, not genitives, infinitives, uh, rather than imperative. So there is discussion as to, is Paul telling us what the Christian life is from a positional standpoint, or is he explaining to us how the Christian life ought to be from an experiential standpoint? Do you, you see what I mean? Is he just explaining the way things are, or is he explaining to us, based upon the way things are, how should it be? How should we then live? Well, it's very possible that there, there may be some purposeful ambiguity, in the way that, that Paul presents this, because really the two should mold themselves or, or morph into one, shouldn't they? There really shouldn't be a difference between who we are positionally in Christ and how we act as a result of that position. You see what I'm saying? And that's not the first time we've learned that, either in Ephesians or in, in many other things. James, that was one of the primary messages of James, was it not, that that we should act consistently with who we are in Jesus Christ. So I think perhaps there may have been some purposeful ambiguity because, yes, uh, who we are should lead to how we behave. doesn't always do that, but it should. So what have they been taught in the past? Well, it can be boiled down to really two, two basic things. They were taught to lay aside the old self, or more technically the old man, the word anthropos, not the word on there, not the word for male, but old man. And they were to put on the new self, or they were to put on the new man. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, explains 
that the old self was crucified with Christ. In Romans chapter 6, Paul's making the point that the old man, and some, some theologians would refer to this old man as the old sin nature. If you prefer, that's, I think that's actually very legitimate. This old man was put to death or was positionally put to death with Christ on the cross. Therefore, it's inconsistent with who we are as Christians to continue to live in sinful ways. Now, that's a, that's a very, very quick, brief summary of what Paul's argument is in Romans chapter 6. The old man, the who we used to be, this old sin nature, if you will, was crucified with Christ on the cross. And so Paul uses that truth to go on later in Romans chapter 6 to, to make the point that we should, therefore, not let sin continue to reign in our mortal bodies. Now, now I want you to think about this for a minute. If it was an automatic, if it was a sure deal... That because our old sin natures were crucified with Christ on the cross, that we would therefore now no longer let sin reign in our mortal bodies. Why do you think Paul would have wasted ink telling us that we should not let sin reign in our mortal bodies? Maybe, just maybe, it's not a sure thing that we're going to act consistently with who we are in Christ. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, you know. <laughs> But I hope everybody's at least silently nodding that sometimes all of us, all of us get to a point where we know we haven't acted consistently with who we are in Christ. And if we say we don't, then John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, we're lying. Of course there are times when we don't act consistently with who we are. So back to what's been taught in a general way. We've been taught, they've been taught, and we have too. In the past, not just the gospel but part of the apostolic teaching, that they were to lay aside this old self, same truth Paul taught in Romans chapter 6, and then we were to put on the new man. I was going to, uh, to try to illustrate this, although I just couldn't find the right garments to do it. So imagine this for a moment. Imagine for a moment that I have an old trench coat on that's got ketchup stains and mustard stains. It wouldn't be mine because I don't eat ketchup and mustard, but... But I must have borrowed it from someone else. It's got ketchup and mustard stains, and it's got dirt on it, and it's smelly, and it's lousy, and it's offensive. If I could have found something like that without ruining one of my own coats, I would have worn it tonight. And let's, let's say I have, I have that on. Well, what Paul, and, and that's representative of the old man, the old sin nature, if you will. What Paul's saying is that we need to take that coat off. Now, positionally, that's already happened, but there's also an experiential aspect to it. We need to take that coat off, and then we're, gonna, we're, we're to put on, we're to go in the closet, and we're to find the Zania or the Armani or whatever it is you've got in there, and we're to put that coat on. Actually, Zania and Armani wouldn't even do the new man justice. Wouldn't even come close. I, I don't even know what you would have to buy to put on to, to, to properly illustrate. The principle. So you're taking off something that's filthy and horrible and that's not you anymore. See, that, that coat's not you. That's who you used to be. It's like you were a, a homeless person on the street. God help you. You know, you're a homeless person on the street, had no food, no money, no place to stay, but somebody rescued you from that and bought you new clothes and bought you a house and a place to stay in a car and gave you a job and a little bit of spending money. How silly it would be to go down to the Dots coffee shop 
and put that old coat back on again. People say, what's he doing? He doesn't have to wear that old coat anymore. That's, that's not who he is anymore. There's no point in there. You see, you see the point that Paul's making. It's a very visual point. It's actually a wonderful point. Now, it's very, very important here that, that, we, that we not miss this. Paul is not teaching. He's not teaching that one who is truly a believer will cease to sin or maybe not necessarily sin as much as what they used to sin or become incapable of committing certain kinds of sin. Just because we've been positionally crucified with Christ doesn't mean that anything is past us. As soon as you start thinking, I can never do that, just I'm telling you, watch out. As soon as you start judging somebody else for having done that, and you say, I would never do that, then double watch out. Because you've got a couple problems entering into the mix there. But Paul, there and here too, is asserting the principle that we shouldn't let sin reign in our mortal bodies. You see, we retain that old coat. And sometimes we seem to enjoy putting it back on. It's familiar. We kind of like some of the stuff we did when we are in the old coat. And, and we go back to who we aren't anymore. I tried to make the coat as offensive as possible. I could have maybe even done more. But I, I wanted you to see how utterly offensive putting the old coat back on is. It offends God, who's perfectly holy and perfectly clean, offends him greatly to see us put something back on that he did away with. There's no point in it, but we do it. So here's the point. The believer retains the old sin nature after salvation, but now we have a choice. Sometimes people are just stunned that unbelievers sin. That's what unbelievers do. <laughs> but you see, you're a believer, and now you have a choice. The, the, the unbeliever doesn't have that new nature that you have. But now you have a choice. You, got, you have a choice which coat to wear. Are, are you going to wear the old one that's dirty, stinking, rotten, smelly, and is not you anymore? Or are you going to put on the Armani that he bought for you that's perfectly fitted that was made for you? I don't think Armani does it. I don't know. But I don't know if Armani builds a suit from the ground up. But this one's built for you from the ground up. So we do retain our Olsen nature after salvation, but now we have a choice. The Christian life is one of not only thinking, but then choosing based upon that which we've put into our soul. Do I function? This is the choice. Do I function moment by moment consistently with my new nature? Or with my old nature? To, to go back to Paul's teaching metaphor, which coat am I going to wear today? Which, somebody gives me a problem in the line at Luby's. You know, you're, you're tempted to take the, the Armani off and put the dirty trench coat back on and have a word with them. You know, that's your choice. And sometimes we do it, and sometimes we just kind of laugh at it and keep the Armani on and, and keep moving down the road. And again, Armani is not, not even an apt illustration. Because the, the coat that God gives us from our new nature, we'll see in, a, in another verse, is so incredible. It's holy, it's righteous, it's based in the truth. Now, this is probably as important as anything I'll say tonight, so, so concentrate just for a couple of moments. It would be a very, very grave mistake theologically to assume that just because we have a new nature, 
that we will always function consistently with it. I, I don't think I'm going to get any disagreement there, but, but I, wanted, I need to state that. It would be a grave mistake theologically to assume that just because we have a new nature that we always will function consistently with it. The problem is the results of that theological mistake that some people make, frankly, have profound ramifications on the lives of Christians who have fallen into a particular sin or a particular pattern of sin. It just shakes their foundations. They start to wonder, am I even a believer? How could I? I've talked to people. I've talked to people that sat in my office weeping in front of me. Bruce, I don't even know if I'm saved based upon a particular thing that had occurred in their life, a choice that they had made. You see, but that's, a, that's the mistake from assuming that just because you're a believer, then everything's going to be aces from now on. I would be lying to you if I told you that. Now, believe me, I'm not advocating bad behavior. I'm not trying to give an excuse for bad behavior. But I'm saying sometimes it happens. It's also interesting to me to note when, when people get into this either with themselves or with others, it's the acceptable sins. You know what I mean by that? The, kind of the acceptable sins aren't the ones that shock them. Just, just the big ones. I can honestly say I've never had anybody in my office that came and said, Bruce, you know, I just maligned the heck out of that person yesterday. I don't know if I'm saved. <laughs> I have gossiped all afternoon. I just don't know if I'm saved anymore. Maybe I wasn't ever saved in the first place. Maybe it was a false profession of faith I made back then when I was a kid. No, I haven't, I've never had that. People, people have certain acceptable sins. And you, I hope you know what I mean by that. They're not acceptable to God, but they're acceptable kind of socially among believers, gossip. Character assassination, meddling, harsh words, arrogance. Things that people aren't think are just not quite that bad. But boy, you commit adultery, you steal, you murder, or are found with pornography on your computer, well, then you might just have made a false profession of faith, and it's very likely you're not saved at all, at least according to some people. Now, I should say very quickly, I am not advocating adultery, murder, stealing, or pornography. I'm trying to make a point that just because one has had the, the sinful nature positionally crucified with Christ, it doesn't automatically follow that you're going to behave that way. We, we make choices every day to behave that way. You can never, the Christian way of life will never become one of coasting for you. If you're coasting, you're going downhill. You're not coming uphill anymore. Right? Don't ever, I, I, I know something, you know, we work hard all our lives and then we retire. We think, well, I'm going to coast from here. Maybe, maybe that's fine when it comes to the working relationship, but not when it comes to Christ. We, we never get to a place where we coast. We've always got to be helpful. I guess what I'm trying to say with regard to that other illustration, all sin is offensive to God. Every sin. It's just, it just irks me sometimes when people pick out a few, and they say, they do that, therefore they must not be saved. I don't hear anybody say, they're consistently running other people down, gossiping about them, they must not be saved. See, we've, we've got to, we, we've got to ha have a grace attitude without having a licentious attitude. You know the difference I'm talking about? I, I, never want to be, I never want to come across as someone who is promoting licentiousness or antinomianism. Not at all. But I do want to accept and appreciate the grace of God because that's the only way we're going to recover when we fall. So, positionally, the old self has been put to death. And believers should act consistently with the new self. We should act consistently with who we are 
in Christ. So let's see if I can illustrate this in a way that I, I think may get the point home. Let's say a man and a woman become married. They are positionally united. The forms have been signed. The, the paperwork has been sent into the county registrar, and it comes back, and there's a piece of paper saying, yes, you and Sweet Pea are now married. Well, let's say this man who is married, who is married, whether he's got a ring on his finger or not, this man who is married dates other women, cheats on his wife, uh, doesn't assume any of the responsibilities of a husband or of a good husband, any of the responsibilities that are consistent with his position as a husband, would we say, think about this before you answer, would we say that that man is not married? No. In fact, that's why we would condemn him, because he's acting as though he wasn't. He's got a position as a married person, but his whole behavior is, is as though he was not, and that's why we would condemn him. But we wouldn't say, no, that guy's not married. Now, his wife might say that as time comes along. So that's why this illustration falls short, because there's no divorce when it comes to God. But, but this guy up here may very well be married. But no one's going to say he's acting consistently with who he is with regard to that marital relationship. I hope that we wouldn't. Perhaps in some cultures, but not in a Christian culture. So he's married, but he is, a, he is behaving like a lousy husband. You know, there are Christians who are positionally in Christ, can I say it, that are acting like lousy Christians. And all of us can look in the mirror and say there have been times when we've acted like a lousy Christian because we have put back on the coat that, that uh, we have been told to take off. Notice this little intriguing phrase here. With regard to the sin nature, that in reference to your former manner of life, I'm in verse 22 now, you lay aside the old self, see, you took the coat off, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Which is being corrupted. This is the old coat. This is the old self, the old man. This old man is being Corrupted. It's present participle, which, which indicates that the action continues to take place, at least as of this particular time. There, there is a teaching out there that's been around in Christianity a long time. It's not true. But there's a, there's a teaching that's been around, perhaps you've been exposed to it, that as you mature in Christ, the old sin nature becomes weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker until one day you just really don't sin anymore. Or you don't have a temptation to do that. I wish that was true. But it's not true. And actually, Paul tells us here that this sin nature, the, the corrupting process, it's, it's ongoing. You know that coat I talked about with the, all that gross stuff on it? It's like it's got more gross stuff on it today than it did yesterday. It's continuing to be corrupted. So this idea that we, we can somehow achieve perfection this side of heaven is not a biblical concept. We ought to be striving to walk in holiness. Now, please don't get me wrong that tonight. We ought to be striving to walk in holiness, understanding that there will be bumps along the way. And when the bumps come, we, we utilize the divinely prescribed remedies for correcting them, and we move on. There's no, there's no sense in just... I think I'm going to get him off there. I think that's distracting. <laughs> there's no sense in just going dwelling on past failures. 
So the corruption that belongs to the Olson nature is a lifelong thing. It's a lifelong process of corruption as opposed to the teaching that one day that it becomes uh, just totally inoperative. And here we learn that the Olson nature is consistently being corrupted in accordance with lusts of deceit. With lusts of deceit. Some people call this self-deceit. Andrew Lincoln, not Abraham Lincoln, but Andrew Lincoln, the New Testament scholar, said this, a false perspective on reality generates a confusion of ideas which can never be satisfied because they've lost touch with what's really true. See, when, when we have the old coat on, it's no wonder that we're confused, that we're frustrated, that we're depressed. Because that's not who we are anymore. But yet we act like it. The temptations that come our way from the old self will be a reality until the day we die and leave this body of corruption. And I've said before, and it bears repeating, I think tonight that's going to be one of the wonderful things of heaven. Oh, how it must feel to take your last breath in this body of corruption and then to take that first breath of celestial air. How it must feel. The relief that we must feel when we no longer have this burden of this body of corruption that we carry around with us and that we live with. In verse 23, the topic of the mind and thinking resurfaces again. Remember, remember we said before, I hope you do, it's just a few minutes ago, futile thinking leads to futile action. Well, it also follows that appropriate action comes from appropriate thinking. See, the, the opposite is true as well. It really tells us that the battle is waged in the arena of thought. Verse 23, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Mindless Christianity is not the Christian way of life. That's not the way, it's, that is not the way that God designed it. He gave us a mind to use, not to check at the door anytime we come into a church. Now, this is going to shock you, perhaps, but I'm not against emotion. I'm not against uh, emotion in church. Sometimes, to tell you the truth, sometimes I wish we'd sing with more emotion. I'm not against it at all. I just, I just want our emotion to flow from cognition, from our understanding of who God is. Then it's true emotion. It's real emotion. I've seen a lot of people a lot, all around the world that had emotion that really didn't know Christ at all. Just emotion by itself is nothing, but emotion that's a result of thinking. Oh, that's great. Appropriate action follows appropriate thought. And the battle is raged in the arena of thought. Again, we must continually put God's thoughts into our soul. We must bathe our soul. We must immerse ourselves in God's special revelation. So putting the old self off is only one side of the equation. Verse 24, we must put on or put on the new self, the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness, holiness, and holiness of the truth. Righteousness, holiness, and truth. The moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are a new spiritual creature. I think we're all on the same page there. It doesn't mean we're going to act like it. And again, that's what Paul is driving home. That's the point he's driving home tonight. This new creature, though, is phenomenal. That's why I said an Armani or a Zania or whatever is a nicer suit than that. I don't know. But that, that's, that's a terrible metaphor because it doesn't come close to really saying how wonderful this new self is that we've got. Because we've been created in the likeness of God in righteousness and in holiness and associated with the truth. 
that's a, that's a pretty good trifecta, isn't it? Righteousness, holiness, and truth. So the Ephesian believers have been taught to put on the new self, meaning that moment by moment, we all have the responsibility to make a positive choice to follow God. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and in the truth. So to summarize what Paul is teaching us in tonight's lesson, living in holiness, walking in holiness, and remember this is the part of the letter that we're in, the, the mandate we have to walk in holiness. We finished the walk in unity, now we're walking in holiness. Walking in holiness is more than just saying no to sin. It includes saying no to sin. I, I would never teach otherwise. But that's not all it is. And so many times believers get that part and they stop. And their whole life is just what they can't do. You know what, you know what it's like? I had a friend illustrate this to me one time. He, he said, Bruce, it's like, it's like living your life, driving down a freeway, looking in the rearview mirror. You know, just don't, don't, don't. If you have no vision for what's in front of you, who you really want to try to please, you're always going to have a, a level of frustration in your spiritual life. So, yes, there are things where we need to say no to sin. That verses 17 through 19, I think, explain that very well. But the Christian way of life, or living in holiness, walking in holiness, not just saying no to sin, it's saying yes to God. And that's where we'll pick this up next week. And we'll continue this section on the positive side of what it means to walk in holiness.